Welcome to What We Owe, a two-part podcast drawn from oral history interviews in the Chicago anti-apartheid movement, archival collections held at Columbia College Chicago. I'm Erin McCarthy, Associate Professor of History. This series is created by Columbia students Adiam Waldu and Bree Ramirez. Funding is provided by a grant from the Council of Independent Colleges, Humanities Research for the Public Good. In part one, the students introduce us to the subject of apartheid and five of the activists interviewed for the collection. This is What We Owe. In 1948, the National Party, led by Daniel F. Milan, would gain office in South Africa, instituting their decades-long presence in the country. In the last year, news of black youth shot by police has become as common as the weather report. Warnings don't stop young people. In 40 years, the Afrikaner government established state-sanctioned segregation, known as apartheid, which would systematically dispossess black South Africans of their livelihoods. If the crowd does not disperse. From church pulpits to college campuses, people around the globe organized to expose and uproot the apartheid regime. And in the thick of social and political turmoil with mass global injustice, we tend to get thrown back into the question what do we owe? Across the United States, people answered this question with action. Chicago, in particular, responded with selfless and unified action from the grassroots level and to the lawmaking bodies. Through the efforts of social justice, religious, and activist groups, Illinois passed sanctions against and divested their holdings from South African firms and organizations. However, we shouldn't take for granted that for many activists, an aspect of the resistance effort to end oppression across the Atlantic was also an act in dealing with oppression in their own backyards. Between 2009 and 2010, student alumni of Columbia College Chicago conducted these interviews with Chicago anti-apartheid activists for the course Oral Histories, The Art of the Interview, taught by Dr. Aaron McCarthy. These interviews, which are currently located in the Columbia College Archives and Special Collections, contain stories of Chicago activists who were engaged in the resistance efforts against South African apartheid. In an attempt to better understand the ways we approach struggle, we turn to the Chicago people as they reflect on their roles as activists, their motivations, and the challenges they needed to face in order to create considerable change. Today, most everyone knows about the racist regime of apartheid in South Africa. In Chicago, people began to respond to what was happening with selfless and unified action. And for this podcast, we will be featuring interviews from Cheryl Johnson Odom, Willie Williamson, Funeka Sashali, Carol Thompson, and Prexy Nesbitt. When did you first learn of apartheid? My earliest memory of apartheid is in 1963. And we had a music teacher, his name was S. Carol Buchanan, uh, at junior high school 59 in Springfield Gardens, uh, Queens, New York. 
And he was very good friends with the musical director for Harry Belafonte. And Harry Belafonte has, you know, uh, famously been, you know, very involved in progressive social movements. And that early period, he was already involved in the anti-apartheid movement. And my music teacher took some of us to um, to try out, to audition, to sing on an album with Harry Belafonte called The Streets I've Walked. And it was an album that he made in which he sang a lot of songs with children. And so I was one of the people who was chosen to sing on this album. And when we went to tape the album and to tape a bell telephone hour, it was like, I don't know, Ed Sullivan, you know, in the 1960s. Uh, and he had brought a troupe of South African dancers to New York, and he was taking them around the country, and they were performing to raise money for the anti-apartheid struggle. And, you know, this were, these were the years of the Rivonia trials and so forth. And so they were called the South African Boot Dancers. And so he took the children, you know, we were in junior high school, who were singing on the album with him to see one of these performances. And not only was the performance unbelievable, but they talked to us about apartheid. And that was my introduction to apartheid. I was uh, a grown, married man uh, living in Hyde Park, where we are right now. Um, I was... Um, listening to a broadcast I believe at uh, Operation Push and um, there was a uh, a drive to get food for um, I think it was South African refugees and my wife and I went to uh, a meeting this was before um Operation Push became Operation Push. I believe it was Operation Breadbasket at the time. And we were concerned about becoming a part of um, something. You know, I mean, here we are, um, students at the time. Um, Where were you going at this time? We were at Malcolm. Uh, both of us started at Malcolm X College. Mm -hmm. And. Um, we wanted to get some canned goods together. And then uh, we went to a meeting and we found out that there was a, a, a petition being circulated to um, expel South Africa from the UN. And we sort of um, immersed ourselves into learning more uh, about this. And as a result of uh, learning more uh, about it, um, we decided that um, my wife and I decided that we needed to become a part of this effort, and um, in doing so, um, it was a great uh, eye-opener to what had actually been going on um, years, years and years, but um, because of our ignorance, we knew nothing about it. And, um, it was something that would make you stop in your tracks and go, why? You know, and not to say that um, we didn't know the answers, it's just that um, it was so blatant and so brutal. Uh, although we had seen, I had seen blatant and brutal before, but you would um, also uh, revert back to uh, where's the sense of fairness? So. Um, it was something that um, sort of uh, arrested us and 
made us think and want to be a part of it. And just jumped in. You couldn't help but be aware of the tension. Because even if we were downtown, um, there were areas that were white by night. Even when we were traveling, you knew you had to time your traveling. We had to get out of here at a certain time. And my parents, I remember being taught um, a double standard from the home. For instance, to be respectful towards um, African elders, you don't look them in the eye. And that's very awkward when you come to the West. People think you're shiftless, you're mischievous, you, um, when you avoid to hold a stare. But it's a form of respect and it puts people in an awkward position. But I had to be taught from home that you stare at white people as much as you can, as much as you're not used to it. If you can't, look at them here between their brow. They won't now. But don't do that with black people. You do not look at black elders. You don't stare them in the eye. So we had to understand why that uh, they're going to call you names. If you don't feel safe and there are no elders or older people with you, you can cuss at them under your breath. Don't let them call you a monkey. You can call them a baboon too. And um, I remember being taught uh, by my parents um, to accept things from white people with one hand, only when it really is heavier than 20 pounds will I use. But I must always try to accept it with one hand and only transfer it to two hands later, just to be as cheeky as you can be within the law and know your surroundings, know how safe you are. So you've got to understand uh, the white houses and the white neighborhoods were nicer and ours, the houses were smaller. So you end up asking questions and little by little your parents make you understand. Africans are never alone. Somehow you get to find people, we find each other. And I can't say I know a time when I did not know because as soon as I found other Afri South Africans here, they take you and introduce you to other people. So as soon as I got here, I found a lot of sophisticated activists who knew sometimes a lot about South Africa, things I didn't even know because of censorship. Um, so I can't say I was here for a long time before I knew about activists. Most of the activists I know from then are still my friends and I just can't imagine Chicago without them. What was your main role in the movement? We used to have um, like cookouts, and of course I was the, I was the main cook um, when it came to uh, designing programs. <laughs> I designed programs. Uh, we would design them 
put them together for uh, distribution. Um, when it came to leaflets, you know, design leaflets. Um, it, I mean, it was just a whole roll of things. Um, it, it, it would be hard for me to just say I was this, you know, because it sort of ran a you know, we we um, put together uh, packets of information, you know, talking points for state legislators, for aldermen, you know, for uh, congresspeople from Illinois, so that, you know, they would have the background research to support why we needed to divest. Uh, we worked with union groups. Um, AFSCME, uh, you know, the American Federation of, what is it, um, county and municipal employees, state county municipal employees, uh, with SEIU. Uh, and then, you know, when the Free South Africa movement happened, uh, SITSA was a main component of the Free South Africa movement. We used to publish a newsletter. You know, we used to host groups from South Africa, you know, political uh, people from South Africa, um, people representing the ANC, you know, uh, sometimes people representing the PAC, you know, uh, people from Namibia. So we would host people. We would, you know, take them places to talk, introduce them to people so that they could you know, very ably represent themselves. So we did, you know, all kinds of things like that. It's explaining the small details. You know, being outside, sometimes when people want to help, they may not know what you need and what you want. Um, people can say, let's say an African comes here with nothing, and people say, Oh, you need a car. It may not be what you need because you don't have enough resources for your background. I think one of the things I was able to, one of the areas is explaining basics. Sometimes people need basic resources so they can stand up on their own feet. Don't give them a mention when they don't have a job. It, 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 small. I'm not a big project person. Um, it's like little things. Understand this. These are people. These are human beings. Give them back their self-confidence and their self-esteem. Identifying what uh, companies were doing in South Africa, what they were um, investing in, how they treated people in South Africa, and also communicating with the people back home on um, how not to participate with or buy certain products. And here we would be in, um, in on panels to talk about divestment and boycott those institutions because most institutions would claim that they did not know. In the 70s and 80s when this was at its height, People would say, no, we, we didn't know. And really, once they feel the pressure, whenever you hit people in their pocket, they would react. It would take time, but they would react. And I think that's one of the variables used in, to, to, to bring down apartheid. You've been listening to part one of What We Owe, in which the students introduced us to the subject of apartheid and five of the activists interviewed for the collection. This series is made possible 
through the collaboration between Archives and Special Collections and the Office of the Provost at Columbia College Chicago, as well as the Chicago Cultural Alliance and the Council of Independent Colleges. Thanks to Jake Alinar, production intern for WCRX-FM, for producing this episode.